dad's pretty ill. His dad's pretty ill. Pretty sick. My dad. He's he's not doing well. Good morning. Yeah, it is on. A couple of announcements. Uh, most important one right now that I see is there will be no evening service tonight. We will resume hopefully next week with our evening service. Uh, new schedule list for monthly communion set up. Uh, copy on the board uh, from the office. And uh, other copy is posted downstairs above the kitchen sink. Did we get an update on men counting? Uh, who made that list up? We're, we're still just going to keep going the way we are with that for now? An updated list? Okay. All right, men, take a look at that uh, so we don't get confused uh, as to who's counting. Uh, as you notice, Terry gave me a, a flyer here. Lapeer County Concert Choir presents poems, prayers, and promises. Uh, Terry and Andrea will be doing singing together during this. You're in the choir. And Hannah, I think, will be doing a solo. At, uh, Friday, May 5th, Sunday, May 7th. Uh, we'll have this posted on the board so you can take note of it. It, it uh, sounds like it would be a tremendous evening of song and praise. Do we have any, uh, we have so many people missing today. Uh, any uh, concerns for prayer? Dan? Uh, if you can just keep the mercy. So what they're going to do is, are they going to do what they did last time and do some kind of stress factors and see reactions? We don't know yet. I see. Based on the quality of the, the U of M study, then she will decide what she wants um, to do or not do. Um, so that it's possible. It's possible that they will do that. 
Thank you. Thank you for that. Nothing else uh, to be brought up. Then our scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. And that will be verses 6 through 12. You'll find that in your pew Bible, page 1145.
you stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? Elder Doug Clayton, may it prevail upon you to lead us. Please take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to 211. No, sorry, from 271. I can't read 271 in the brown.
scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 11, into chapter 3, verse 8. And that'll be page 1819, or 1859, I'm sorry, in your Pooh Bible. When you reach that, please stand with us.
Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through chapter 3, verse 8. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not, do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Will you take your red Trinity hymnal this time and turn to number 469, 469 in the Trinity?
just talking about that. No, it was mine, brother. <laughs> well, good morning to you. Um, yesterday morning, about 8 o'clock, I was out already trying to get the day going. <coughs> Lots of things to be done. And I had a whole to-do list ready to go. And knowing the rain's coming, one of them is rain dependent. I have to get something done before it rains. First thing on my mind is in the truck on my way to do those things. And my dad called and said, I've called Mark to, to come and preach, Mark Loker, and he's not answering my calls. He says, I, I need someone to preach. And well, God redirected my day at that point. I often think, George says all the time, preach, pray, or die. And uh going to be doing the last one at some point, right? Preach, pray, or die. So I sat down last, uh, well, yesterday, just yesterday, and thought, well, I don't have much time. I better go back and refresh and look at some of the sermons that I've preached and maybe redo them and find one that's kind of appropriate to what we're experiencing. And as I was looking through, I don't have as many, nearly as many as George or my dad has, but I could not find one that kind of addressed what my heart was um, knowing we needed to hear. And so I started the process of writing a sermon, and God gave me the words pretty quickly. Um, with all the events that have been happening, not only the events of this past week, but the shootings that have been taking place, the violence, the escalation of things, uh, we're, we're, we're past the COVID crisis, but we seem to have jumped pretty first into another period of crisis. And, and I don't know if it's going to get better. I know it this much. At some point, the Lord's going to come, and it's going to come to an end. Okay? The new heaven and the new earth. So what I'd like to speak today, today there's not really much of an introduction, we're going to jump right into it, is putting our trust or our rest in the goodness of God. And as we do so, <clears throat> let's have a word of prayer here before we begin. Father, we are thankful for any opportunity where you awaken us from our sleep to the distinct purpose of doing your will for that day. I thank you, Lord, for being a part of that. Oftentimes, Lord, you know my heart. I'm unwilling in some areas to my shame. But I'm thankful, Lord, for the opportunity to be at labor in your kingdom, doing your work. And I pray, Lord, that you be with us today as we look at your goodness where we may lose our way when we look at others and try to find good in humankind and are constantly failed by such. I pray, Lord, that you will help us this morning to look to our Savior. We ask you to bless our time in his name. Amen. Living in this cursed by God world is at many times in the least frustrating and at the greatest devastating. The sin and the effects of sin we experience are tremendous and life-altering. This world in which we live remains under the curse of God and will so until its end. I don't know about you, but I love to experience the seasons as they change. I love to feel the cold, listen to the stillness, and view the pristine, beautiful snow of winter, the rebirth of spring with green leaves and birds chirping, sunshine and warmer, pleasant temperatures, the longer days and swimming in refreshing water in the summer, and I especially love the coolness and the color changes of the leaves during the fall. 
I am intellectually curious and grateful for the technological advances made throughout history that make our lives easier. Contrary to belief, I actually enjoy people and witnessing their strengths and wonderings at the talents that they've been granted by God. And I, as you may expect, love listening to music of all kinds and genres. I like some a lot better than others, but I can appreciate the workmanship in most pieces of music. There are some pieces that I consider exceptional, and I am greatly moved emotionally and spiritually as I listen to organized sounds. I thank him for the beautiful sunrises and sunsets that he paints every day and for my unique vantage point in time and space by which God has allowed me to witness them. This world is beautiful to me as I have experienced it, and I can honestly thank God for it. And indeed, I can say along with Louis Armstrong, what a wonderful world. But you know, the seasons are the result of a slanted axis of our earth, and we must wear various layers of clothing to accommodate the temperature changes. The sunsets remind us that hours of darkness are coming. The advances in technology allow us to deal with our declining abilities to do things or address medical issues that threaten our lives. In addition, my eyes have not witnessed the perfect beauty of heaven, and even if they had, I am convinced that my eyes are not capable of fully viewing the scene. My ears have not heard what perfect music sounds like, music without the accommodation for the degradation of tonality or the perfect synchronization of rhythm amongst a group of musicians. And I have not yet met a perfect human being. For all their talents, wisdom, and intelligence, they have tremendous flaws, and they are temporary. Everyone expires. I myself, am tremendously flawed. There's physical pain when we stub our toes, get cuts, bruises, and such. Mental pain when events happen that we do not want to happen or when people do things to us that we don't like or appreciate. Pain and heartache often accompany pleasure and contentment. It wasn't always this way, of course. God made this entire world, including mankind, and pronounced it very good. Genesis 1 verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. God's original design for this world we live in was perfection. Everything was very good. There was no great temperature changes, no thorns, no biting flies, no ravenous carnivores. There was no death. All of the pain, heartache, and death we experience here was caused by a crafty deception and a willful choice. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and that they sewed lips, fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. Genesis 3, 1-7. There are a couple of things for us to observe here. First, Eve was deceived, but Adam willfully disobeyed. And how do we know this? Well, in 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 through 14, it reads, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. You know, God may have reacted differently if Adam had also been deceived, but there was never a possibility of that event. God creates a beautiful world and places man in the middle of a lavish garden to be his vice-regent. His image-bearing creation rebels against him, and God reacts. We'll look at that reaction in just a minute, but there's something else here. The serpent, by the time of this temptation, has already sinned. Satan has already fallen, but God has not cursed the earth as a result of his sin. No, it is the rebellion of God's image bearer, God's crowning creation, his person in charge of the rest of his creation. It is his rebellion that brings the curse of God. God doesn't just curse Adam and Eve. He curses all of his creation as a result. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Genesis 3, 8 and following. You know, you can hear the differences in the judgment that God pronounces on each person here. All of them were unpleasant, but Adam's judgment is broader in scope. The serpent and Eve receive personal reprimands. Adam receives his personal reprimand, but also the additional curse of the ground. 
It is at this point that we must understand that God did not create the world and then leave it to some autonomous end. He creates and then sustains his work. And this is important to understand in looking at the curse. God pronounces his curse, but he does not abandon his sustaining work. Therefore, the curse is equally not autonomous. It cannot operate apart from the control of God. That means that every stubbed toe, every speck of sand that irritates the eye, every thorn that pierces, every bug that stings, every animal that bites, every event that brings an end to a life, they are all under the control of Almighty God. And if so, then each event has purpose. And that purpose is at its base, at its very least, to glorify God. And this concept is difficult for us as sinners to understand. We truly believe, and hopefully as Christians fight against the idea that our existence is all about ourselves. We can see this in Eve's evaluation of the fruit. So when the woman saw the tree was, that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it, of its fruit, and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. Who, exactly, is Eve thinking about as she considers breaking God's law? Well, Eve saw that the tree was good for her to eat, and that it was a delight to her eyes, and that it would make her wise, and she ate. Who is missing in her evaluation of her disobedience to God? God. Well, what about Adam? Well, as he was with her and wasn't deceived, so he willfully chose his wife over his creator. Well, who was he thinking about then? Himself. And certainly not about the God who created him and his wife Eve and gave him such a great purpose over his massive work. Brethren, human selfishness stands in opposition to God's glory. The chief end of man is to glorify God, not ourselves, and enjoy Him forever. And so our first problem, when we evaluate things that cause us pain, is that we can only seem to think about our pain due to our singular sinful focus on ourselves. Secondly, we must not allow ourselves to believe that God is the author of sin. As we can see in the account, Adam and Eve willfully made the choice to sin against God. Could God have prevented the action? Yes, in his sovereignty, he could have. However, he allowed this rebellion to happen. The reasoning behind why God would have allowed this to occur is beyond the scope of our study today, but we can suffice that the allowance of sin brought God greater glory. But there is a reason as to why God cannot be the author of sin. Sin is what God is not. God cannot be something that he is not. Darkness is the absence of light. Coldness is the absence of heat. God is good. The absence of goodness, therefore, is sin. Here are some verses to consider. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Mark 10, verses 17 and 18. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And conversely, speaking about us in contrast, Romans 3, verse 12 reads, All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So God is good and cannot sin, and we are sinful and cannot do good. In our self-aggrandizement, we believe that the things we experience that make us happy or feel good or seem pleasant are good. When God is saying, if there is any good here, it is me. Not just because of my actions, no, it is me. I am good. You see the difference? Brothers, I wholeheartedly believe that we often nay nigh to always mistake the graciousness of God for our perceived inherent goodness. The question living in this cursed world should not be, why do bad things happen to good people, as we often hear, but rather, why do good things ever happen to wicked people? And the answer is, because God is good, and He is in control of all circumstances, and over his own curse of this world and everything in it. And he is abundantly gracious to all people, even to those who hate him, and particularly gracious to his saints, whom he loves. That is how Job of old could rightly say, though he slay me, even though he takes my life, what we would consider to be the ultimate bad thing by our understanding, I will hope in him. Job 13, verse 15. You know the grace of God that stays the curse and keeps it at bay. What do you think this world would be like without his restraint of the curse? A world without his grace. And let me tell you, a world without the grace of God would be a living nightmare. It would be, in a word, hell. Brethren, the effects of sin and the wickedness of the world are the closest that God's people come to experiencing hell. And conversely, the effects of God's gracious staying hand providing sanity in an ever-increasingly wicked world is the closest that unbelievers ever come to experiencing heaven. In hell, there is no restraint of evil, but in heaven, there is not even a hint of it. And brethren, that is something great to look forward to. We have no experiential knowledge of this. We are all plunged into this wicked world it is all we have ever known, but a place of complete goodness, a place untainted by sin, how can we grasp an idea of it? No eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. Someday we will know. Someday, as with our natural birth, our world will suddenly and radically change. On the day of our physical birth, we went out from the cramped, dark womb that we inhabited for nine months into a large world that we can never fully explore, in a galaxy full of planets we can never visit, into a universe of galaxies we cannot fully comprehend. Our eyes squinted as we experienced light as we had never seen before. 
Our lungs took in air having never been used before, and although we did not know yet who was holding us, our mothers held us with great care. And for the first time in our lives, we experienced the joy of being held closely and loved. As beautiful as this moment was for us, our birth into the next life is that much more. The scope of space that we experience from the smallness of the womb to the expansive universe will be that much more as we move from here to eternity. And the security and warmth and love that we knew while our mothers held us in their arms and kissed our heads will be dwarfed in comparison to being held in the arms of Jesus Christ, the one who formed us, loved us, gave himself for us, and has prepared a place for us. The place where good resides. The place where Jesus is. More on this later. Thirdly, God demonstrates his power over sin and the curse. History is replete with events where God uses evil to accomplish good. And yes, people get hurt and even killed along the way. Those people might not have considered the actions of God to be very good. Nonetheless, they were good. Here's a few events of the Old Testament. Consider the contest between God and the gods of Egypt. It culminates with the death of all the firstborn children of the Egyptians, no matter the age. Later, the entire Egyptian army, and presumably Pharaoh too, are drowned in the depths of the Red Sea. What about the people inhabiting the land of Canaan? <clears throat> they were to be exterminated by Israel as they took possession of the land. But what about the entire families of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, swallowed up by the earth? They got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry. Numbers 16, verses 27 and following. Now we easily understand God's righteous judgment on the three rebellious men, but to destroy their innocent families right down to the little ones as mentioned in verse 27? Well, let me remind you of three important verses of Scripture. For the wages of sin is death. Romans six twenty three. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, Hebrews 9.27. If these little ones, as outlined in this passage, are sinners, and indeed they are, then they fall under the curse of sin and will, and will be eventually paid its wages. There is none righteous, no, not one. It is the grace of God that keeps his wrath from claiming all of our lives as stillborn children. One more verse to consider. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Genesis 18, verse 25. 
Brethren, if you do not think that God taking the lives of these quote-unquote innocent children is good, then you do not have a godly understanding of what it means to be innocent, nor of goodness as defined by He that is good. And if you are struggling, remember this as well. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Consider also the story of Ruth. Listen to just the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the women were left without, sorry, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Ruth 1, verse 5, verse and upon returning home, this is what happened. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Ruth 1, 19-21. But brethren, you see, <clears throat> there was a plan by God at work here. The events had to transpire in the way they did. Ruth had to come back as a displaced Moabite. She had to be redeemed and wed to Boaz. Boaz, who fathered Obed through Ruth, and Obed fathered Jesse, who fathered David, who became King David, to whom God promised in Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah 11, the first five verses. In order for God to have the proper lineage for his son, Jesus Christ, Elimelech, Malon, and Chilion had to die in Moab. Naomi had to go through the loss of her husband and then her two sons. Ruth had to experience the grief of her own husband's death and then leaving her homeland and never returning. They experienced very real pain and very real heartache. And all for what? The glory of God. They did not see God's promised Christ in their lifetime. 
They did not know the ultimate plan, and they did not know the why of their pain. God did not explain things to them as these set of tragedies unfolded upon them. He didn't owe them an explanation for his actions, and he doesn't owe us an explanation for the grief in our lives either. We may go to our own graves wondering why God allowed the heartache we experienced. And of God, the scriptures say, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All of the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Daniel 4, verses 34 and 35. God is sovereign. And God is good. Nothing he does is questionable. His motives always remain pure. And he always acts in the best interest of himself, which, by the way, is the best interest for us as well. Let us not forget the workings of God as applied to the death of his truly innocent son, Jesus Christ. In Peter's sermon in Acts 2, we hear exactly how the death of Jesus came about. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 2, verses 22 and 23. Here we see God using the wicked acts of people who believe wholeheartedly that they are acting on their own behalf. They crucified the Lord of glory out of wickedness and lawlessness. But God used their wicked acts to bring about the greatest act of love ever done. For the words prophetically spoken by Joseph as he revealed his identity to his brothers show us the workings of how God continues to use fallen mankind to do his will. As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Genesis 50, verse 20. You know, as we learned last week in the sunrise service, these actions of God cost God pain himself. From the very felt, unnatural darkness that covered the land to the earthquake that split the rocks, tore the veil from top to bottom, and raise the saintly dead, God experiencing separation from God. Jesus forsaken by his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father and Jesus the Son going through a horrific event, bond by their own plan and agreement, enacted by their will, actions that cause the Godhead grief and sorrow and pain. Those who claim that God does not know pain, does not know suffering, and does not know grief quaintly forget that we humans were made in His image. We cannot have something in our character that is not patterned after His image. Of Jesus, the uniquely begotten Son of God, Isaiah reads, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53. Can you not hear the pain of the Lord Jesus Christ? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sounds similar, doesn't it, to our own cries when tragedy strikes. Why, Lord, why? Don't you love me? Why would you put me through this? Brethren, at this moment, when our faith in God's goodness is challenged, when we doubt the goodness of goodness himself, we must remember as God is about to send Israel into exile, a very unpleasant thing for a nation to be dispossessed of their home. God promised this this in Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. One more thing to consider, as Jesus stood outside of the grave of Lazarus, one of his dear friends, we read this in John 11. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you lain him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. John 11, verses 32 and following. Here we not only see the great compassion of Jesus, and I believe his very real grief over the death of Lazarus, we also see Jesus' reaction to the effects of the wages of sin. Sin causes all of pain, every bit of it. The Bible says that sin even grieves the Holy Spirit. From the minor scrapes and bruises we get from playing as kids, to the aches and pains that we experience as we age and deteriorate, to the extreme pain of death, sin is the root cause. We may take medicine and apply ointments to temporarily alleviate the intensity of these things, but we cannot get at the root. Sin is everywhere, permeating everything, everything that we can experience. And humanly speaking, we shall not escape it. So, is there no hope? Well, remember, Christian, that God has promised welfare, a hope, and a future. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he has made a way to be with him. He has removed our sin. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write on them, uh, write on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 5. 
Lastly, I want to look at Jesus as he comforts his disciples. After Jesus tells him, tells them that he is going away to a place they cannot follow, after they have been with him for over three years, their grief was very evidently plain. Jesus spends a great deal of his time comforting his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go. To, uh, would I would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, the first seven verses. The comfort you see for these grief-stricken men was that they would be with Jesus again. No matter what would transpire following the coming events of Jesus' death, they would see him again because they would be with him again. And the way was already known through Jesus himself. Not that Jesus would just make a way. No, Jesus is the way. Where is the Father? In heaven. Where is the Son? Right now at the Father's right hand. How do I get to be there with God? Through the way of Jesus Christ. At the time of Jesus speaking these words, the sacrifice had not been made and they could not, as of yet, follow him. But each disciple, with the exception of John, left this world early by the world's standards. Everyone but John was martyred for faith. Beheadings, crucifixions, and impalements awaited these men. A grace, if you will, all the more quickly to be with Christ. They traded earthly comfort for a miserable ending. Where did they learn to do this? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, verse 2. But what of this place that Jesus mentioned about preparing for them? Going back to Isaiah 11, we read, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 11, 6-9 They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk, not faint. Isaiah 40, verse 31 And of the new Jerusalem we read in Revelation Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Moving on in that chapter, And I saw no temple in this city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, verses 22 through 27. There is no need for tears if there is no grief or pain. There is no grief or pain if there is no sin to cause them. It will be something special, something greatly to look forward to, to have one's tears wiped away from your eyes by none other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the rest that is coming. Thank you for your grace here on earth now and for your constant working in our lives, Lord. We ask that you would help us to understand goodness. Our understanding of it is always based in us when the reality is you are good. I pray that you help these truths to sing and comfort our hearts, Lord. And we ask that you be with us in the remainder of the service. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn today. There's 546 in the Trinity. 546. One of my favorite hymns. When you find 546 in the Red Wings, you 